Today is the celebration of the resurrection on the calendar, but you should know that every Sunday that we gather, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Whenever I've accented this, and I've been challenged by professing Christians, by Christians, that the Sabbath is Saturday, well, that's already a given. The Sabbath is a Saturday in the Old Testament, but it was switched over to Sunday because of this event. We now worship, and the Christian church has worshiped on the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath still obligatory, still moral obligation, but we worship on the first Sunday of the month because Christ is alive. Amen. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. The title of this message, The Resurrection and Walking in Newness of Life. So hopefully we'll have the uh, practical application of the resurrection of Christ in this message. And that's why I'm reading to you from Romans chapter 6. Here we have an application of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul writes, under the aegis of the Holy Spirit, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? And in order to make this really come alive, put in any word that you want in there. Adultery, stealing, lying, drunkenness. Think of anything that God has specifically condemned in the word. And substituted for the word sin. Shall we continue in that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin? Again, you can put in there any word that you'd like. I would suggest especially that begetting sin that so easily you fall into. We are dead to sin, live any longer therein. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection and walking in newness of life. You know, it's a great thing to talk about the resurrection in what I'll call theoretical terms. And then it's another thing to connect it to a historical fact that this humble carpenter from the city of Nazareth or the town of Nazareth, who claimed to be God, was crucified, put to death on a Roman cross. He was buried. And then claims are made that he's alive again. Now, it's one thing to state that, and it brings, no doubt, joy, and it brings hope. But then it's something else to apply that now, right now. That we are to have two things that we read in this passage, these scriptures. Number one, water baptism is a similitude of Christ's death on the cross. So as I've spoken to you several times over the years and recently, we are to live a crucified life. That's what this passage is talking about. This, by the way, this is what it means to be a Christian. And so I say to you, especially lately, I'm using the term more frequently, I'm done with Christianity. Now, that's a deliberate exaggeration of what I really mean. But Christianity is always subject to the denomination or the board or just individuals, how they define it. For us, there is only one word. That's the word of God. And this is the Christian life right here. Yeah. It's a life of crucifixion, of daily crucifixion, where we are dead to, and again, you can substitute whatever is your besetting, that was the word I was looking for earlier, your besetting sin, 
adultery, drunkenness, hatred, envy, bitterness, and all of these works of the flesh. And you set that in there, and it says, shall we continue in these things, and God could give us more grace and forgiveness? No, he says, no. How can we? Not what or why. How can we? We're dead to them. The idea is we are to now be walking in a new life. It's not a reformed life as you have when, and I know some of you have been there. I told you I was years ago in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's a reformed alcoholic. That's not what the Bible is talking about, reformation. It's not talking about being a reformed drug addict. It's talking about being given new life, a life we did not possess at birth. Then we read in the scriptures that you must be born again. And so we have received Christ. We have received God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We've received God. And we are born to a new life right now. And so this scripture here says we are to be walking in that new life now. To finish the point, it's one thing to talk about the resurrection as a fact and to celebrate it, which is certainly, certainly good. But much, much better to celebrate it every day, every single day. And then to gather once a week in remembrance of this hope that we have. As I just mentioned, as we're praying for our brother in the hospital in Georgia, and in the discussion that I had with our brother here, even if God in his providence and sovereignty would decide to take somebody, as he has, I've done a few funerals lately, this is our hope. It's just not over. Yeah, we sorrow now, and we miss people for a short time, and believe me, it's going to be so short. Until we're gathered together, as the scriptures teach us, together with him and them, I put a post up on social media the other day where Jesus was saying, take and eat, this is my body, and what we call the Last Supper. And the header that I put over was, next time we eat with him. He said he would never drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drinks it fresh in the kingdom. So in a sense, I could say to you that he's waiting on us. And only he knows when that last person will say, yes, Lord. And that's the final count in the mind of God, who God alone knows when that is, where that is, what number that is, what time that is. But when that last person says, yes, Lord, and we're taken up to meet him, which the scriptures declare, then we will all be together. When Jesus raised the cup, in other words, the second time, it won't be the last supper. It'll be the bridegroom taking the bride. It will be the wedding supper of the lamb. It will be eternity, which once again... When we compare, when we even we read, excuse me, <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, and the Apostle Paul writes, I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared. We talk about that, right? We're comparing apples and oranges. There's no comparison and all that. The Apostle Paul, again, the Holy Spirit writes to the Apostle Paul. He says, I am persuaded that the sufferings and the troubles and the anxieties and everything we're going through in this life is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, not just to us but in us, in that resurrected body. And let me remind you of this as well. Everything we see in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, that was prophesied that what happened has happened in a literal fashion. There was no allegories. There was no figurative way of fulfillment. God prophesied this or that, the other thing, that we've read over the years, and each one was fulfilled literally. Meaning, when Christ returns, he will return literally. When he is to take up those who have already died in him, in Christ, he will bring them up literally in a new body, which we read is like unto his body, a resurrected body, a body that has no capacity any longer for death or sickness or disease. This is our hope. But let me say this to you. If this seed of the word of God does not fall on the heart that's really soft, it's prepared the way we prepare our ground now here in the springtime for gardens and farmers prepare for their crops, where we got to till the soil and we've got to get out the stones and whatever weeds are around and so on so that the ground is fertile for the seed to go in or the young fledgling plant to go in. Then all of this here is what I would term just simply religious talk. And the critics would be right in saying that we just have this kind of a daddy in the sky that's make-believe. But the most exciting thing to me is to be able to go to God in prayer. When men are saying, look, this is, you know, this is not going to happen, then it happens. And then it happens because people prayed to God, and God has said, 
Call unto me, and I will answer you, and show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not of. That means it's not in our wheelhouse. We don't know it. But God says, now you call unto me. My prayer. You pray to me, and I will show you great and mighty things. And I say this again with respect to people who are sick or dying. If God decides to overrule, it's still a victory. Amen. That's what we have to see. That's what this is all about. In addition to the fact that when Christ died on the cross for our sins, the many, many number of them, this is the proof that God has accepted that sacrifice, that he's alive. And as he lives, it's a song, right? We sing it. As he lives, I will live because he lives. I can face tomorrow, but I don't go that far in my mind. I got to make it through today. There are days, and I've had a couple of them recently, well, I said, I'm only going to just think about the next hour. Anybody uh, identify with what I'm saying here? It's not like, oh, well, tomorrow, I can face tomorrow. I said, I got to make it through today. And then today seems so chaotic. I say to myself, okay, just think about what's going to happen in the next hour and just make sure you're getting it. It works out well when you do it that way. Just taking life in little segments, little bites instead of huge, huge chunks. We are supposed to be walking in newness of life right now. And when this is the truth, and we accept the truth, the ground is prepared, the heart of man, your heart, is truly prepared to receive it, then it brings forth fruit. Then our lives, as I have shared with you twice already this month, then our lives reflect the glory of Christ. This is when people look at us and they say, well, what's different about you? I'm speaking for myself here, but I know it's true of you as well. When Christ came into my life, he not only changed my thinking, which is obvious, he not only changed my so-called principles, which is obvious, but obviously it was reflecting in my countenance, the way I looked. I was only 23 years old. And I would see people in the neighborhood, particularly the mothers and fathers of my friends, and they were looking at me and they would say, there's something different about you. Did you cut your hair? And I said, no. Different? No. Lose weight? I said, no. And then I would say this, you know, I said, it's Christ. And of course, especially in those days, you would get this kind of odd look, this strange look that, what? Because these were people that went to church. And you'd say, no, Jesus, Jesus has made the difference. Amen. The beautiful thing about walking in newness of life, walking in the resurrection, if you will, is the fact that it not only makes people curious, but we have the privilege of influencing other people. We don't change anybody, but we have the privilege of influencing other people. So the resurrection and walking in newness of life. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the, quote, first fruits. He is, quote, the pioneer of life. He has forced open the door. Listen to this. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. That's the truth. When someone truly has Christ, who is alive, not dead. Philosophers are dead. Religious teachers are dead. Christ is not. Christ is alive. When we see this in its truth, that Christ is alive and he's inside you, you know, the Holy Spirit, your life changes and it has to be noticed. Just like I've shared with you, on a cloudless night, the moon is reflecting the glory of the sun, S-U-N. And when anyone receives Christ, the person, their life begins to reflect the glory of the S-O-N. And people notice. And that should be something, I'll use the word proud, that we should be proud of. Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul again says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles or the Greeks. It's the power of God. I'm not ashamed We have no reason at all to be ashamed of Jesus Christ and his words. 
So if I start out saying to you, what shall we say? Well, you know, the scriptures say, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in? Then you fill in the blank. Some of us were immoral. And God is saying here, but no longer. Some of us were angry, bitter individuals, hostile. And God says, no longer. And then you can go right down the line, as I just mentioned, and you can put in anything that is in here in the Bible, and maybe a few things that are not. And God says to us, you are to walk in newness of life. And obviously, like fish going upstream, if this is the truth, people notice. Now, you may have experiences, I'm sure that you have, but there are some people who are just not happy with the change in you, which really fascinates me because I'd like to know what does my life changing have to do with irritating you? When I was going through radiology, or I was in radiology school, as a student, I was working with a tech who wasn't a whole lot older than me. Maybe we were about the same age. Anyway, he was the one I had to report to, a professing atheist. And one day I was just literally sitting there and explaining to him how Christ has changed my life. And he became absolutely livid. I mean, really animated. And he said this to me, because I was sharing some other things I had accomplished up to that point. And he said, why do you give credit to somebody else for the things that you did? And I said, because they didn't do them. And that made him even more angry. That professing atheist, and I think I've told you this story before, that professing atheist was so mad that day, he probably doesn't know it, but he ought to be glad that I was saved after he started speaking to me the way he was speaking, because it would have been a whole different scenario, only a few years, maybe one year before that. In any case, I just kept my composure, and he continued to express his anger at my testimony, at the change in my, I didn't even get to the point to say he could change you too. I never got that far. So he gave me, he barked some kind of an order to me. And I just, yeah, okay, fine. You know, and I went and did what he was requesting. A couple of weeks later, we're talking in the coffee shop. And he says, you know, why do you believe in this Christ in the Bible? And I began to explain to him. A couple of weeks after that, we're on a break. We're in the coffee shop. And he's scratching his head a little bit. He says, oh, wow, maybe I'm not an atheist. Maybe I'm an agnostic. We began to share a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until the day came. He said, so where is your church? And he showed up. Now, what became of him after that, I don't know, because we took different paths. And that doesn't always work out that way. But what I'm saying is this. When you walk in a new life, it makes people curious. In this case, it made one man angry at the change in my life, which I still can't figure this out. Why people are concerned with the change in your life. But in either case, whether it's someone who is happy for you or someone who is angry at you, always make sure that you have the same posture as the Apostle Paul, who said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. I've shared with you this truth, and it's very unique about Christ. And let me use the word religion, and our religion called Christianity. You see, you could take any religion on the planet and take its leader away from the religion and it'll still stand. But if you take Christ away from Christianity, the whole thing falls down. There's nothing left to it. Josh McDowell wrote these words, the Christian faith is faith in Christ. Its value or worth is not in the one believing, but in the one believed. Not in the one trusting, but in the one trusted. And that's a fact. I want to share with you something we went over not that long ago, the I am's of Jesus. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 48, Jesus is talking about how God fed the Israeli people in the desert one day at a time. As you know, this manna, which means in Hebrew, what is it? Seems to be appropriate. They ate all the food saying, what is it? And now Jesus is making the comparison in John 6, 48, and he says, I am that bread of life. We know that bread is the staple of life. It's what keeps us alive, in theory. It certainly kept the Israelis alive in reality. And Jesus says, I am that bread. I am. In John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me 
shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And again, I relate this to you. He didn't say, I'm going to share principles of life with you that when you have these principles, you will have light. He says, I am the light. I am that bread in John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door, not a door, the door. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. I am the door. And I just got to stop here for a moment, just relate a story. My good friend, Harry Donald. This man had the Bible committed to memory. Never opened his Bible at the pulpit. Never. But when he stayed at my house, all those years gone by, and boy, how I miss him. He never closed it. I'd go out to the office, wherever I was going, and hours and hours later come back, he was still in the Bible with his pen and just making notes and notations. His Bible was so highlighted that I, I looked at it a couple of times. I'd say, Harry, how can you read this? It was underlined and underscored so many times, and he would just simply say, oh, brother. <laughs> but when he got to the pulpit, for those of you who remember hearing him preach, never opened the Bible and would quote it so quickly, you'd have a hard time reading as fast as he was quoting it. Well, his brother-in-law was R.W. Schambach, the famous Pentecostal evangelist. And he tells this story that I want to relate to you that's related to this verse. In those days, they were doing the tent meetings, which very few people were doing. I don't know today how many people are doing them at all. And they were in Buffalo, New York. In ministry, especially when you're doing revival meetings or evangelistic campaigns, you know, by the time you're closing up and finishing, you're having supper at midnight. So there was a family there. There was a man in this family at the tent meetings years ago that invited Brother Shambach and Harry and their families, they were all little kids at the time, to have supper at their house after the tent meeting. They accepted. And they went to the man's house, and he had all of this food, you know, spread out. And then he began to share with his guests how he came to meet Christ. And he shared this story of how he was doing so well in life. And by the way, this is something for all of us to pay attention to. Doing so well, the money was coming in, health couldn't have been better. There was just, you know, nothing going wrong in his life. Then one day, out of a clear blue sky, this man developed meningitis, and it got progressively worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, until there wasn't anything they could do for him but to put him in the hospital. He was Roman Catholic, and the situation got so bad that finally they called for the priest. Now, for those of us who were raised as Roman Catholics, there is an ordinance in the church, Catholic Church, known as last rites. I don't know if you've ever had them. I never have. But when you have that, the doctor's saying you're going to die and the priest saying you're dead. So it was a kind of a blessing in one way of speaking. And they sent the priest in. So he comes in, you know, he has the black shirt and the collar and the whole thing. Comes in through the door. It's a darkened room. The man's in a lot of pain. He's uh, definitely losing life. And he gives him the last rites. And then he leaves. The man kind of drifts off into a semi-sleep. And all of a sudden, there's this bright light that just fills up this hospital room. <laughs> and here comes this figure coming through the wall with the big, long, flowing gown and brightness inexplicable to look at. And he says this, and if you've ever listened to Brother Shambach's radio broadcast in years past, he had a little saying that he always ended with. And this is how he got it from this man. Here comes this shining figure to his bed. The man is just about dead. Everybody, including the church, has written him off as dead. And here comes this figure who we, we know, obviously, as Jesus. And he says, you don't have any troubles. All you need is faith in God. Amen. Laid hands on him. Now, this is similar to, you know, how I became born again. Laid his hands on him, went back through the wall. All of a sudden, the man's had all this energy, and he's feeling great again. So he decided to go into the bathroom and take a shave. He's in there shaving, and the nurse comes in, and she's, what? You, you, know, you got to get back in bed? You can't be, you know? He says, I'm healed. Amen. So now at supper, he's telling this story. He says, one thing, though, he says, that I don't understand. He said, the one priest came through the door, and the other came through the wall. He said, why, why did he come through the wall? And that was at that moment that Brother Shambach, I believe it was, who shared with him, he said, man, he is the door. Amen. I am the door. 
Christ is alive. There's no, no way for us to validate these stories we read, these testimonies we hear. However, the scriptures make it very plain that Jesus is alive. This is not just, as we use the word religion, religion is not a bad word. This is not just a religion the way it's ordinarily used. We're talking about a person who is in this room right now, who said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Somehow, is it Jesus walking up and down the aisles? I don't know. I do know this. The scriptures say, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. And lo, he says, I am with you always. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, Christ is with those that are with him. I mean, even when we go one step further, or maybe one step backward, it is taught and told to us in the scriptures that he gives his angels charge, a commandment to watch us. And I don't understand how all of this works. I truly don't. You would think God alone is enough, but he has angels and he asks us to pray and all this. Um, But there's angels watching over us. They go with us. Then we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And then we have all of these things that the Bible says that he has given unto us, all things that pertain to life and to godliness, that we might become partakers, John 15, we might be partakers, a branch in the vine, and draw off the life of God. And he's alive And because he lives, we will also live. We are only defeated when we look at life the way everyone else does. Death is death. And Jesus is saying here, no, death has no power on me. Well, let's get down to the verse. John chapter 10. Let me read verse 11 before we go a little further. I am the bread of life, John 6, 48. I am the light of the world in John 8, verse 12. I am the door in John chapter 10, verse 9, then verse 11, same chapter, John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But here it is in John chapter 11, verse 25, and I'll take this a little further in just a moment. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Then in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then finally in John 15, 11, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Jesus puts himself, and rightly so, in a position that Christianity, as we call it, cannot stand without him. Again, there are principles in the scriptures, but it doesn't stand on principles or principle alone. There are laws, same thing, really. And there are all of these things in the Bible, including a couple of traditions that we still practice and are told to practice, but none of them can stand if Christ is done with. If you take Christ, the living Christ, the one that's alive right now, out of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart, unlike other religions. And why? Because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am. And the reference here from John chapter 8 at verse 58, he says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew immediately what his reference was. He was taking the place, assuming the position of the same one that spoke to Moses in a burning bush that was not consumed when Moses was having his doubts and did not want to go back to Egypt to tell the Pharaoh, let the Israelis go. Let my people go. So Moses there says to God, he says, well, they won't believe me. Who shall I say has sent me? And that's when God, speaking out of the burning bush, says to him, tell them, I am that I am. The great I am. And here in John 8, 58, when Jesus says that, they took up stones because immediately they knew what the reference was. Before coming to this service today, did you have a clear idea of who it is you're talking about, singing about, praying to, and all of that? This Bible declares that Jesus of Nazareth, again, the humble carpenter, the teacher, the itinerant rabbi, claimed to be the God of the Old Testament. He claimed to be Jehovah. I am 
that I am, I am that bread, I am that door, or the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the light of the world. I don't give light, I am the light. In Genesis chapter 1, which we just studied a few weeks ago, we notice that when God comes in creation, the first thing that we see is God spake and said, let there be light. But down a few verses later, we notice that he says that he created the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, that he made the stars on the fourth day of creation. And if you don't understand the Bible in its entirety, you say, wait a second, he just made light. He said, but he didn't. He came into his creation. He is the light. When we go to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, and in the city of Jerusalem, there's never a power shortage. You never have to flick a switch again or whatever you do. Uh, there's still a few pole chains in my house. How about yours? You know, we just got, and the light goes on. Never again. God is the light of the city. Amen. Jesus says here, I am the light of the world. When I say things and other preachers and people like yourself say, Jesus is the answer for America. That's not just to say, oh, we need a little bit of Jesus and we need a little politics and we need a little of this. He is the light. Amen. He is the power. He is everything. I am. And they knew what he meant. Let me go back down here to John chapter 11 and just share with you briefly the story that most of you would know, but some of you may not. In John chapter 11, very quickly, Jesus is in Jerusalem doing his marvelous, mighty, and miraculous works. When a message comes to him from Bethany, which is very, very close, it's not far away. And the message to Jesus is that Lazarus, your friend, is sick. And Jesus acknowledges the message after it's given to him. And he says to the disciples, let's stay here a few more days. Now, let me speak to you as a minister. When I receive a call, I'm expected to answer it. And I do. Uh, most times I do. Emails, I answer all my emails. I answer all my texts. And there are some exceptions here or there. But I answer them. And so anyway, Jesus is expected to just come running. And he doesn't. He stays in Jerusalem a couple more days. And then he says to his disciples, let's go to Bethany. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. So they're saying, well, that's a good sign. If he's sleeping, he's resting. He's getting well. And then Jesus said, no, no, no. You misunderstood me. He's dead. Then they said, well, it's not written that they said this, but they said, that's not good. Why even bother to go back to the family? We know we're going to get an earful from them. And I'm just paraphrasing this story for you so you get the point. He's on his way to Bethany, and as they begin to leave, he says, you know, I'm really glad I wasn't there. Now imagine me saying that, or imagine you hearing a rumor that something very bad happens in your life, and I said, well, I'm glad I wasn't there. <laughs> Wouldn't make me much of a pastor, would it? But we're not talking about me, we're talking about Jesus. He said, I'm glad for your sake I wasn't there. And they're confused, as they often were, and as we often are. He says, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there, because I'm gonna raise him back up from the dead. On his way to Bethany, Martha, Martha married Lazarus. This is the family, right? Lazarus has died now. He's not just sick, he's dead. And Martha and Mary. Mary is being Mary. She's just sitting in the house, probably praying, definitely crying, weeping, lamenting, grieving over the death of her brother Lazarus. And probably, well, not probably. She was definitely saying, why didn't Jesus show up? Why didn't he come? Well, Martha, being Martha, runs out to meet him and says to him, I think I would call this a very polite reproof. If you had come when we had called you, our brother would not have died. See, they knew Jesus as the healer. May I say to you by way of an exhortation, I think we have to rise even to that level. I mean, today, you won't need to be healed in heaven because you'll never be sick. Right now, my nose is so, uh, I've blown it so many times that it's raw. So I don't need to be healed in 100 years I need the healing today. And that's how I pray. In any case, if you had been here, she said, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, well, your brother's going to live again. Now, she knew her Sunday school lessons, and she said, I know in the last day, the resurrection, she had that much faith, that he will rise again. And that's when Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. Amen. I'm not just a doctrine. I'm not just a Bible school lesson, a Sunday school lesson. I'm not just a text for some preacher to preach. I am the resurrection. I'm the beginning of the universe. I'm the end. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. I'm the aleph. I'm the tav. I am it. I am God come in the flesh. I am the resurrection. And boy, I tell you, 
Doesn't get more dramatic than this. Of course, Mary comes out and says the exact same thing, if you have been here and all that. And Jesus says, let's just go to the cemetery. <laughs> There's the stone. He's buried. He's four days dead. So everybody gets the picture that it's not going to smell pretty. And he says, roll the stone away. And Martha, she's Martha. She's a lot like Peter. She's like, Lord, I told you he's been dead for four days. It's going to stink. This will be embarrassing. It's bad enough he's dead. Jesus said, didn't I tell you that your brother's going to rise again? And he says in that stentorian tone, Lazarus, come forth. And boy, you talk about drama because he's mummified. He comes out. And again, you know, if we were God, wouldn't you kind of undress him first? I mean, roll the stone away, take off the wrapping. So when he comes out, he's, he's not. He comes out and he's still wrapped in the dressing. So think about Lazarus. What was going through his mind? Like, what's going on? Last I knew, I was laying in bed. Now I can't even move and I'm restricted. And there's people crying and looking at him. Try to get it from both angles. And someone has noted that if Jesus was not specific about who was to come out of the grave, they all would have came out. Amen. Because that's the Jesus we see in this Bible. Amen. Who will judge the living and the dead, every single person who's ever lived. Yes, Lord. We are going to meet as either judge or savior, one or the other. Mm. And these things are true. The apostles gave their lives to witness to these things. In the book of Acts, it says that with great power, the apostles gave witness of the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection. All right, yes, the cross and the burial and all that. But without the resurrection, Jesus is just another criminal. He's not really even a criminal. He's just another person that died on the Roman cross, rightfully, wrongfully, doesn't matter. He's just another person, another teacher, as Reverend Sung Young Moon would say when he was alive, who made a mistake. It wasn't supposed to happen. Jesus was supposed to repopulate the earth. So Sun Young Moon, when he was alive, said, I'm the Messiah, and I'll do it. That hasn't been accomplished either, primarily because he's dead, and Jesus is not. Right. It was not a mistake when Jesus went to the cross. He said, for this reason, I was born, to die for the sins of every single one of you, and to be raised again, the exception of the sacrifice, yes, very important, but I think that we would accept the fact that we're going to live again I don't know how many people I've buried in my ministry in, in my lifetime. It's been a lot. But everyone who is trusted in Christ will rise again. God forbid, you know, you would die tonight. You will rise again, as we are going to read in just a moment. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So he speaks about himself being the central figure of the universe, of everything that is, everything. And then he talks about resurrection and he raised, first of all, he raised others from the dead. We see Lazarus as being one. Do you remember Jairus? He was the ruler of the synagogue. Very similar scenario. You could read this later in Luke chapter 8. When Jairus came to Jesus, he said, My Lord, my daughter's at home and she's very, very ill. Will you come? Will you heal her? And Jesus started to go. In the midst of this, a woman touches him that had been suffering with an issue of blood for 12 years. She's immediately healed. If I may touch the hem of his garment, yes. I will be healed. Yes. And she was. And make a note of this, because it's important that we understand that many people, it says in the scriptures, you read them later, thronged him. But that touch of faith, the Bible says in Luke, it says, and virtue went out of him. And he stops. He says, who touched me? And the disciples are saying, Lord, everybody's touching you. This is a bit embarrassing. I mean, the crowds are all around you, and there's all types of people, and everybody's kind of got their hands on you. He said, no, somebody touched me. Yes. You see where this, how shall I say it, this relationship is between us and God? Now, you could touch him in a matter of speaking in prayer, but God says, you touch me in faith, believing, yes. nothing wavering. And she was healed. Anyway, on the way to Jairus' house, servants come and say, don't bother the master anymore. She's not sick anymore. She's passed away. And Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid, fear not. And the man says, he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That battle that we all find ourselves in. What we're feeling, what the diagnosis is, and what the scriptures say. That's the battle of faith. Your daughter will rise again. When he gets to the house, they're actually laughing at him. She's just sleeping. That's a term the Bible uses, a euphemism for death. And they're laughing at him in scorn. Put them all out, he says. Even most of his apostles didn't go in. And he goes in and he says these words, Talitha kumi, little girl arise and she gets up. He is the resurrection yes, yes. 
He raises Lazarus. He raises Jairus' daughter. And then we have the widow at Nain, and put yourself in this position. Here in America, if you're widowed, you can go out and get a job. We know of many people who are in the upper echelon of years who decide to go back to college and they get a job and they become whatever they become. And they go out and earn a living where maybe they didn't have to in the past. But in the days of Jesus, if you were a widow, you were really stuck. And in her case, she lost her only son. So the firstborn, I'm a firstborn, the firstborn was supposed to take care of the mother. So widows were covered under the law. But if you had all girls or if the son didn't fulfill his duty, or in this case, the son dies. So she's got the grief of losing her son and the anxiety of what she's going to do for the future. And when Jesus is walking along, they're coming and he's being carried out. He's dead. And Jesus comes along and he touches the buyer, funeral buyer, and the boy awakes. It's joy for this woman on both sides. Her son is alive again. Her son is able to provide as well. I'm thinking that that's how she's thinking. But being a woman, I would have guessed that her greatest joy was that her son is alive again. We don't see many resurrections this day. I I will admit that. But there is coming a day. There is coming a day when we will see the dead in Christ shall rise. They'll rise. I say they. We will rise the same type of body that Jesus himself has, a resurrection body. And that from there, you can just start to use your imagination. I don't think God will mind. A couple of my kids would ask me when they were little. They don't ask me anymore about this, but they wanted to know if they could play basketball in heaven. I said, oh, yeah, you know, because they're little kids. Oh, yeah. I said, you'll be able to jump like Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, that doesn't thrill me. Uh, this walking would thrill me. Um, but, you know, dunking a basketball. But, you know, who knows? Because we don't really have a clear picture of what eternity is going to be like when we see Jesus, we see God face to face. Will we even recall the little colds or even the death? I knew a couple that both were killed on Christmas Eve, hit by a tractor trailer. Boy that was in the church, young man in the church, lost his father and his mother in one felt swoop, boom. I've seen a lot of things as a minister, most ministers do, all kinds of things. But those that trust in Christ, not only will be raised up again, That's one good news. But we are to walk in newness of life now. We are to overcome now. I feel like I'm preaching more of a message today on healing than I am on the resurrection. But let me say this to you, and this is my view of sickness. I treat it as an enemy. I don't care if it's sniffly nose, a little congestion, whatever it may be. I treat it as I believe it is in reality. It is an enemy. It is just a little slice of the death that Satan brought to us when we sinned with him against God. Then Jesus brings to us the salvation that is both full and free. So I'm just simply suggesting that this newness of life is very broad and has a lot of benefits to it. It keeps you strong. They that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And that's what we need in this generation. We need to see the demonstration of a resurrected Jesus. Jesus talks about raising himself up. So he raised up others. They knew that he could do that. In the very beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of John, again, we learned last week that Jesus cleansed the temple, turned over the tables, kicked the money and all of this on more than one occasion. In John's Gospel, we have perhaps the first occasion in the beginning of his ministry. And then they come to him and those that had never been healed. So let's say that they were in church, but they say sick the whole time until Jesus cleansed it. And then they came forward and they were healed. Then the religious leaders say to him, well, but what authority do you do this? And this is what he said. He said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it back up again. What religious leader can dare say, you want to really know? Like, remember the guy from Florida? He's passed away now too. Who kept telling everybody he was Jesus. He had tens of thousands of followers and buckets full of money. And I told you about him before. He's now passed away. So, so much for that. Jesus has not passed away. He's alive. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up again. I'm thinking that Jesus made that comparison on purpose, because he often spoke in parables. And they're saying, it took 40 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? And Jesus, the Bible says in the beginning of John, he says he was talking about the temple of his body. He claimed, let's say once again, this man that was in Florida at one time, 
said to his congregation, or those who were disputing it, people like myself, you want to know that I'm Jesus? You kill me. In three days, I'll raise myself back up again. Well, it's illegal in this country to do that. But if we took him up at his word, you know what we would find? A corpse. That's it, a corpse. With Jesus, we have an empty tomb. Moses has a tomb. Well, somewhere God buried him. All the prophets have tombs, and so, but Jesus has no tomb. He just had it for a few days. Just needed it for the weekend. He came back up, and he's alive now. And he is the head of the church. He is the head of the church. The church cannot be destroyed. Cannot. Well, you see, outwardly, whoa, that's going on. Well, much of that doesn't belong to Christ. It may in some form and by some definition belong to Christianity, but it doesn't belong to God, and it doesn't belong to Christ. Christ is the head of his church. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when God says anything, it will come to pass. It is coming to pass. Whatever we see with our eyes is of no material value. But the church is being built at this very moment and it will continue to be built. And you should it so play out in your life to die in Christ. To be absent from the body, spirit and soul, is to be present with the Lord. Then at the resurrection, in the first resurrection, then to be reunited with the body, come out out of the grave as did Jesus. This is our hope. I've studied, I've always been a thinker. I've always been the person who was able to think independently. Always the guy asking, how come, why? Even when I go to my doctors, well, how come this? Why is that? How does that work? Just curious most of the time. But I'm telling you, I would give up this Bible in a heartbeat. I really would. If I came to my own personal conclusion that this wasn't really true. But I'm telling you, the longer I live, like Franklin said, Benjamin Franklin said, the more convincing proofs I see. He was talking about God governing in the affairs of men. I'm talking about the authority of the Bible that God actually wrote it. Think about how much more, not only productive your life would be, but think about how much more of a quality of life you would have if you truly believe this book today. Open it up daily, all the time, just reading it and absorbing it, letting the seed fall again on fertile soil. You're not gonna be free. None of us are free from the temptation to unbelief. We're hit with a feeling and a sense of news or whatever. But when the good news and truth of the Bible materially overbalances, overcomes the bad news, then we overcome, which, by the way, is what Christ expects of us, to overcome, not to succumb, but to overcome. So then we read again, for we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You look up for yourself versus related to Jesus speaking about raising himself back up again. You know, what can I say? You either believe or you don't. And again, don't misunderstand me. I've had as many doubts as any of you. But when I talk to God in prayer, like J. Iris, I say, you know, Lord, help my unbelief. Help that part of me that isn't quite, I don't understand. And then also as a suggestion to you, acknowledge that you don't understand everything. Just let it go. Let it go. I told you, I've got a very curious mind. I don't even know how many books I even own, but it's a lot. I read on a lot of subjects. And I don't understand everything. I don't even understand much about my refrigerator. I truly don't. i got a vague idea of how it works. But one thing I have learned over all these long years going inside of it, reaching inside of it, it works. Someone said, I don't understand how a brown cow can eat green grass and give white milk, but it does. I don't understand everything about the Bible, but I understand this much. Our God reigns. Our God lives. He is willing to prove himself strong in the behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. And you don't want to miss out. Let me just say it this way. Even if, and assuming so, you go to heaven, you don't want to be caught short at that moment. Say, oh, I should have believed when I was down on the earth. Life will never be that pleasant down here because it's hard. It's hard for all of us. But it can be better than it is without the wavering, without the back and forth. And in this world of constant chaos, confusion, argumentation, it's vexing. It's nice to know. It's good to know. There is a solid rock 
on Christ, not Christianity, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I want to finish with this because the title was The Resurrection of Jesus, The Resurrection, and Walking in Newness of Life. We are to walk in newness of life today. The scripture tells us, Today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation. Today. Today is the day to believe God and his word. Today is the day to turn the heart completely to God. And, you know, don't worry about people. Don't worry about what are people going to say. And I'm going to say this to you again. My goal in life in general, but specifically related to this pulpit, and I prayed over you today. Oh, God, you know, let the people be built up. Let them be edified. And some of your problems I know and your situation, and I pray for them too. But at the end of it, my goal is to please God. And I really don't care much at all if it displeases somebody else. I truly don't care. Not do I care about people, of course. Why would I, how would I be a pastor if I didn't care about people? But if someone wants to, you know, talk behind my back, or better be prepared to talk to my face. But either way, it's okay. It's okay. Because I have known whom I've believed. Amen. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And in the end, that's as pragmatic and practical as it can be. That you know. Not that you listen to someone who says he knows or she knows or all these wonderful testimonies that are out there, but that you know that your Redeemer lives. Father, we bless you today and praise you. And I say it this way in just a manner of speaking. I'm glad that I no longer have religion and so glad that I have Christ. So glad I have your word to go by. Though tempted to worry, I don't have to be in despair. Though feeling down, I don't have to fall into clinical depression. Though sick in body, I don't have to stay that way, but believe you for your healing and all these great promises, God. I pray today, Father God, that we would all be grateful, that the grousing would stop, because there's a lot to complain about in this world. But you said to be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world, and you've given to us the victory. Though our shields be dented, And our swords pitted, we're still standing. Having done all with the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, sword of the spirit, the word of God, and all that, we're still on the battlefield, and we're still alive, and we have the victory. God, give everyone today the victory. Cause every single person here in the sanctuary, watching on television, listening on the radio, give everyone the victory that we have in Christ, ours for the taking, Cause them today, God, to pull out their hand and say, if I can touch but the hem of his garment, I shall be saved. I shall be healed. God, we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor today. God bless my brothers and sisters and help us to walk together in love, love to you, love to each other. I pray again this day be very blessed for everyone here. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.